50% of the direct support professionals in this country rely on some sort of public assistance. They, they live in poverty. We have a workforce that has historically been disenfranchised. Supporting people with some significant complex medical histories, that takes a real skilled professional to, to adequately and, and competently support them. Without an investment of real dollars that affect not only wages, but career ladders and career pathways and, and ways to keep people in these jobs that they're good at, we're not going to solve this issue. Where Policy Meets People, a Jev's Human Services podcast. I'm Kristen Rantanen. This is a podcast for policy wonks that gets to the heart of policy. One of the things that this pandemic year has taught us is the meaning of the word essential. Many of us, myself included, were able to leave our office spaces behind and work from home. This was not an option for many across the country. This was certainly not an option for a specific kind of essential worker, the Direct Support Professional, or DSP. DSPs are a crucial component of the care economy that make up a workforce of millions of people who are dedicated to providing care and support for people with intellectual, developmental, and physical disabilities. The kind of care that allows an individual to live an independent life of their choosing in the community. Direct support professionals are essential workers. They're needed, they're necessary, and they were able to continue when others weren't able to continue in their jobs. This is Claire Thompson, Senior Vice President of Community Living and Home Supports at Jeff's Human Services. Over the last 30 years, there's been a focus at the state level on moving services from institutional settings into community settings. So small group homes in the community or other low, lower cost models of service have increased. So we at JEVS provide services to people in their own homes or to people who live with their families to help them build skills and increase their independence. So there's been more of a focus on community types of supports and small group homes. That shift away from institutional settings to community-based settings, it is about less expensive models, but it's also about providing the most independence possible. Yes. And care in smaller settings allows more intimate relationships and better relationships between the staff who are providing the support and the people who live there. Our work's different. We work with people in everyday life situations and the staff have to be able to adjust to all of those situations. They're helping people to meet their primary needs, but they're also helping them make connections and build independence. And a lot of that is very intimate. I think when you care, you have that caring gene Caring about somebody's well-being will push you to give them that care that they need, regardless of how you're personally feeling. This is Edward Colmer, but everyone calls him G. He's been a DSP for over 20 years at Jeff's Human Services. So let's let's talk about what um, the day-to-day is like for you. Is there such a thing as an as a typical day, an average day as a DSP? Anything can happen out of the norm. Somebody gets sick or 
you know, something happens. But what I would say is that there isn't an easy day. There's once you get accustomed to the work that you do, you come familiar with the people that you work with and especially the uh, the community that you serve and whatever individuals that you have for that site or home that you're in. It becomes normal work. What you're saying is there's like a routine to it once you develop a relationship with the right. person that you're supporting. Yes, absolutely. And with me, I support at night three gentlemen. Mm-hmm. I have a routine when I get there. Robert can tend to have an accident while he's sleeping. So when I get there, I can get him up. I always get him up and I'll, I'll assist him to the bathroom just to make sure he has a good night and his sleep isn't broken. But I have to get him up and, you know, kind of clean him up. Mm-hmm. So just try to be proactive and not reactive. And another guy might get up through the course of the night and, you know, use the bathroom. But but pretty much through the through the course of the night, just monitoring, making sure that the guys are all right. Keeping an eye on everything, making sure the house is safe, the guys are safe. No one needs anything during the night. Right. Well, during the work that 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 I do, you wear a lot of hats. Sometimes you're a porter. Sometimes you're a cleaner. You might be a janitor. You might have to make shift fix something until maintenance can get there and fix it. So it's it's managing the house, but then it's also knowing what each of the gentlemen needs. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's let's talk about the last year and the COVID shutdown. You couldn't work from home. So um, tell me what that was like. It must have been a pretty intense, especially in the in the beginning. It was just starting out. When the curfew was implemented, uh, uh, Jazz gave everybody the papers just in case you got pulled over. I was pulled over. And once you get pulled over by law enforcement, once you show them and they see the work that you do, a lot of times they're on the, more understanding than anything. I have a toddler going to work and thinking of either bringing something in to the individuals that I'm, that I'm there with or bringing something home to my toddler. In the beginning, no one knew what it was, how could you contract it with, right. because uh, one of our, one of our guys wound up uh, contracting and he wound up, uh, he wound up passing away, Alan. And it was, uh, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was rough. It was rough. He was a uh, guy that kept you laughing and, and to see him in that situation to where, how he kind of declined, it was, it was kind of disheartening. I'm really, really sorry for your loss. I know, I know that it's like losing a family member. Definitely. And that's what I don't think people understand. Like, like when you're working with people, it's a lot different. You become so close to these people that they are like family. You care about them like you care about your grandmother. The work that you do, you have to be physically close to people sometimes. And it's physically demanding. And doing very physical, intense work with people is is tough. What other kinds of qualities make someone good at the job that you do? If you have a caring, a caring gene, that caring personality to care about people, regardless of whoever it is, you, you don't have to know them to care. Uh, my grandmother was the type, she used to look at the news and when she would hear bad news about whoever it was, she would always shake her head. And I would say, well, grandma, did you know them? She would say no. But when you have that caring gene, your heart goes out to whoever's in distress. Mm-hmm. So I think the quality of a good, sufficient DSP will always be caring because you will always do your best to make sure that person is comfortable, that they have what they need, that you do your very best. Because you know for a fact that if this was me, this is how I want, this is how I want somebody to treat me. I think when you have that, I think you will always do the best job that you possibly could. What are the, what are the challenges and the frustrations? What makes your job hard? 
doing this work has taught me patience. I wasn't always the most patient of people. And it's taught me a lot of patience. Case in point, I had uh, one of the consumers, he was a younger guy, and uh, he was having some problems. And the problems that he was having, I was kind of blaming the problems on him. And it, it led me to do some soul searching. And, I, and it got to the point to where I realized that it wasn't him, it was me. It was my approach. It was a lot of things that I was doing. So when I changed my mindset, it changed my approach. And I, I was more gung-ho about trying to tackle maybe his attitude, the way he looked at different things, trying to get him to be more upbeat. And it wasn't so much of a chore once I changed my mindset about it. I did not think you were going to answer the question that way. I was, I was expecting to hear like, oh, you know, it's, it's these long overnight hours that are tough. So the, the biggest challenges for you are sometimes in the frustration around building the relationships with the clients. Right. That's it. Because the work that I do when I'm, when I'm overnight, I just have to make sure those guys are taken care of. That's it. Make sure that they're clothed, that they're clean. I check on them during the night, make sure everything's all right. That's all I have to do with that, with that situation. And, and I do that to the best of my ability. But when you have to deal with different attitudes, that's when a lot of times the job starts because it's like, you can't make someone do what you want them to do. You can't make someone feel how you want them to feel. And it takes adaptability to be able to figure out different ways of handling situations, dealing with a person, talking to a person. It, it makes you really, really understand the plight of other people and what other people need, want, and them having a quality of life that they would like to have. When you have a guy that, that maybe has an attitude, but he has an attitude for a reason, and you have to figure that reason out. He's entitled to have that attitude. My job is to stop that, get him to understand that it, it doesn't take him to be so angry, to get what he needs, and that's the breakthrough. The eureka is always in the work, but it's not, it's not the end result. It's the work that you do to get to that point that makes you feel good. And that's, that's what I love. That's, that's one of the things that I really like about doing the work that I do, is that, that I feel like I'll make a difference. Hearing G describe the work of a DSP makes it very clear that this is demanding and difficult, yet deeply fulfilling work. The critical service of people taking care of people deserves fair and equitable compensation, yet DSP wages have stagnated for years. Essential in 2020 is different than essential of 2019. I think we all realize that direct support professionals have always been essential. In 2021, essential became a term that government used. This is Joe Macbeth. He was the gentleman you heard at the top of the show. He's the chief executive officer and president of the National Alliance for Direct Support Professionals. The NADSP is an organization that dates back to the mid-90s, whose mission it is to educate, advocate for, and elevate the direct support professional workforce. So it was government who had to recognize the essential nature of this workforce. The issue with that is, in our system, direct support professionals in the caregiving world are often an afterthought for a variety of reasons. One is, direct support professional is not a job title that's recognized by the United States Department of Labor. Hmm. It, we don't have Bureau of Labor Statistics data. It, it's anonymous, in fact. They're sort of like home health aides, and they're sort of like personal care attendants, and they're sort of like nursing assistants. But when 
when people like me do cross exams of the skill requirements for all of those jobs, DSPs have a much higher demand for skills, but they're not recognized formally by government. And we had to really fight to get direct support professionals deemed essential. But beyond that, during every crisis, whether it be weather related like snowstorms or, or um, wildfires out west or tornadoes in the Midwest, direct support professionals always rise to the occasion. They are always committed and dedicated to be there when they're needed. And I knew last year that the same thing is going to happen in a health crisis during the mm -hmm. pandemic. DSPs are going to be asked to rise to the occasion. And they did. Not only did they rise to the occasion, they exceeded our expectations. Redefining their jobs in the middle of a once-in-a-century pandemic, a significant healthcare crisis, DSPs are there. Right. Now, there, you also see these signs of, you know, heroes work here. And, and your organization may even have these banners that, you know, heroes work here. And that's great. I don't disagree with that. But if we, during a pandemic, refer to our direct support workers as heroic, and I'm sure there are some very heroic people, and they, they put their own health in the, at risk at times. When we come out of the other side of this, and we don't do something to improve the, the living wages, the access to career ladders, the recognition of a job title through the, the Department of Labor, then it's just basically the exploitation of a workforce. We have a golden opportunity to use this horrible year that's behind us to make some significant change for the better. That's been decades in the making. And if we, if we squander that opportunity, Shame on us. Shame on us. Shame on society. We interviewed a lot of direct support professionals through Zoom, getting their stories because there was so much uncertainty. There was so much fear. And not one of them, not one direct support professional that we interviewed, and we interviewed dozens, referred to themselves as a hero. They said, mm -hmm. we're just doing our jobs. Our yeah. jobs are a lot different now. We had to redefine it and figure it out. And we will. But I'm not a hero. I read an article um, recently by a man who has disabilities, who uses direct support professionals in his life every day. And he, he reflected on heroes. And he said, when people think that I need a hero to support me, what does that say about me? Hmm. Does that devalue hmm. me as a person where I need a hero to work with me? And I use that in a lot of my speeches now because I think we need to Listen, if, if, if we're paying heroes $12.50 an hour, um, that's not how you treat heroes. And I think people with disabilities would say, I don't need a hero. What I need is a, a competent and ethical and a stable professional to help me in whatever needs that I have. Mm -hmm. That's what I need. Oh, it, it, it makes sense to me. It shouldn't take a year-long global health crisis to point out what folks in the field and folks around the field have known for a long time. I think this is a good segue to public policy. The Biden administration has recently unveiled an effort to invest a lot of money into what they call the care economy and talking about the work of the DSPs as core to the nation's infrastructure. What's your reaction to that? 
I couldn't be happier. It's opportunity for us. It is a silver lining from a period of dark and stormy clouds. I think the devil is in the details with this. So in the IDD sector, um, our best estimates, because we don't have that occupational code with good data, our best estimates is about 1.4 million direct support professionals in this country supporting people with intellectual developmental disabilities. When you go beyond that in the caregiving economy, we say cross-sector, supporting the aging and the elderly, supporting people with behavioral health needs and psychiatric needs, supporting people, ch- children and families services, is about 4.5 million direct care workers. We have to make sure that those who support people with IDD are part of these conversations. Because we don't have that occupational code, the policymakers and the bureaucrats will, will forget about us if we're not at the table. The issue is to make sure that every stakeholder is part of these conversations. IDD, aging, family caregivers, behavioral health, child and family services, home care, domestic workers, they're all part of this. Mm -hmm. And I, lastly, I think we can't take any half measures here. We can't say we can do it cheaper. Well, it's interesting that phrase, we can't do it cheaper, because what I was always told, part of the move from institutional care to community-based care was an effort to save resources. Not only is it the kind of care that people want and better quality, but, you know, theoretically it should save money. And I feel like the home and community-based system has really been starved. There should have been more money following people into that system. The HCBS system was built off of the backs of direct support professionals. Mm-hmm. In the 70s, I would love to read some of the minutes from the Penhurst closing, because mm-hmm. I will almost guarantee you that there was conversations that we can do it cheaper. Not only is it better to live in a community, but we can do it cheaper. How can we do it cheaper? We're going to pay our direct support professionals poverty level wages. That's, that's how we did it cheaper. And everybody will admit to that. Other professions, nurses, social workers of 100 years ago, had to raise their standards, had to raise their expectations. And that's the opportunity in the HCBS Access Act for a workforce to really build a bona fide profession. Mm-hmm. But without doing that, it's just going to be the same as it has been for the last 40 years. It's the devaluation of a workforce and a devaluation of people with disabilities. This is a golden opportunity to do it right. And yeah. it, the Access Act will not be successful if they do not invest in the workforce. A rich and robust community living program in the United States is dependent on a rich and robust workforce. Joe's words really resonated with me as we at Jeff struggle with the ever-present wage disparity among DSPs. I want to circle back to my conversation with Clara Thompson, Senior Vice President of Community Living and Home Supports at Jeff's Human Services, and dig into the issue a little further. I know it's something that we talk about a lot at Jeff's, and as much as we want to 
be able to pay higher wages, and, and we're doing our best to accomplish that. There are a whole lot of other issues at play, systemic issues at play. You know, some businesses can increase their wages and pass those costs on to a customer. Target, for example, can decide to do that. But as a business that's run with fixed payment rates, we can't at Jeb's. So can you talk a little bit about the systemic issues that we need to overcome to, to really address the wage issue? Our funding comes from the government with a state and federal match, but the state sets the rates. Mm-hmm. And right now we have statewide rates that are set. So the rate is the same in Philadelphia as it is in the center of the state where the cost of living is not as high as it is in Philadelphia. And we've currently had the same rates since January 2018. Wow. That's three years. And so we have to continue to advocate with the state for rate adjustments so that we can increase wages. We participate with statewide advocacy groups and those groups often present various options to the state for increases to direct support professional salaries as well as uh, rate refresh. But we have to continue to advocate so that we can increase those rates and, and pay wages. And Jeb's is a union shop. We have a collective bargaining agreement. So we are committed to giving raises as much as we are able to afford it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's difficult to manage when your income is fixed. But we are committed to our workers and to trying to find a way to make it work. So our advocacy at the state level has to continue. With that in mind, I spoke to someone who cares a great deal about these issues, Pennsylvania House member, Representative Stephen Kinsey of the 201st. Years before his work in the Pennsylvania State House, Stephen managed services with Jeff's community home programs. There are many of us in the state legislature that, that recognize that, and these are my words, that direct support professionals are underpaid. Mm-hmm. They're not being paid enough for the work that they do. Right. And, you know, there's 67 counties in the state across the state of Pennsylvania, and every single county has constituency that that have special needs or intellectual disability. So this is not a Philadelphia issue. It's not a black issue. It's not a Latino issue. It's not a white issue. This is a people issue. And, you know, all 203 legislators in the Pennsylvania State House have constituency that are dealing with this right here, right now. I think that we need to find a way. And again, I'm not talking about cutting any other portion of the budget, but by the same token, we, we need to find a way to dedicate dollars to the folks who work in this field. And I actually authored a letter along with my colleague, Representative Liz Fiedler. She's a, a rep from Philadelphia. And in this letter, we're actually asking that we allocate $540 million directly to agencies that provide services to people with intellectual disabilities. I think many folks are aware that, that states all across the United States are receiving dollars um, from the federal government. In Pennsylvania, I believe that we're expected to receive, to receive um, 
$7.2 billion. Yep. $7.2 billion. And so what um, Representative Fieler and I are asking or requesting is out of that $7.2 billion, we want to dedicate $540 million directly to agencies that provide supports and services. Thank you for doing that um, on behalf of the workforce. I wanted to talk a little bit about the equity issue here too, because in doing a little research to prepare for our conversation, I was really struck by the fact that nationally, nine out of 10 DSPs are women, and more than half of them are people of color. And I've heard the secretary and uh, the deputy secretary in Pennsylvania talk about this as an equity issue. Um, Christian, that opens up a whole whole different can of worms for me. The reality for me, being a black state legislator, is ensuring that I advocate on behalf of folks of color. Mm -hmm. We are a minority in this state. We are a minority in the state house as legislators. And then across the board, you know, as you talked about women being nine out of 10, unfortunately, on the average, women receive less per hour than men do. Mm-hmm. And this is not just in the industry in which you work, but I mean, we're talking about in industries in general. I think that at every single level, we, and I'm saying we, uh, speaking as myself, as a, as a state legislator, we have to do more to level that playing field. And again, when when we talk specific about this particular industry and, you know, we talk about how we hold um, direct support professionals in high esteem, I think then we need to show that. The reality of it is people who work in this field, you know, some of them, if they were in another industry, they probably make double the amount. Right. And it's so unfortunate because even today, in fact, just recently, McDonald's, McDonald's, McDonald's announced that they were going to start paying employees $15 an hour. Yep. And so, you know, listen, I applaud them. I think that's great. But how do I compare, you know, working at McDonald's to being responsible for somebody's life? Right. You know, and not knocking McDonald's, but I just think we really need to balance that out. And again, I I applaud all of the, the industries that are paying more dollars. I just think that there has to be a fire lit under legislators to simply say, we recognize this and let's invest more of the state budget towards paying adequate costs for adequate salaries for these direct support professionals. I've been really encouraged to see efforts in Washington in the administration and in the Senate and now in the House to look at elevating this workforce. Most recently, Congresswoman Susan Wild from Pennsylvania um, co-sponsored a bill out of the House that would invest over a billion dollars in training and opportunities for DSPs. That, coupled with an effort in the Senate, the HCBS Access Act, championed by our own Bob Casey, who has been a real leader on this issue, um, both looking to elevate this workforce. Can we talk a little bit about the federal efforts and the critical connection to work at the state? I know we need to see some increases in Medicaid funding at the federal level to make things happen for folks in Pennsylvania. Well, I can tell you this. I'm not familiar with Congresswoman's legislation, but I will tell you what we see happen at the federal level makes it easier for us here at the state level. Because in most cases, the federal dollars come in and support the state efforts and the state efforts, those dollars at the state then are filtered into the local municipalities and so forth on. That's very helpful because when we see changes at the federal level, they filter down, which in turn helps us. And I'm feeling very optimistic. 
just the fact that there, in my opinion, seems to be greater dialogue at the federal level in regards to creating opportunities and looking at directing dollars that could be helpful to this industry. So I'm very optimistic about that. I want to thank my guests, Clara Thompson, Edward G. Colmer, Joseph Macbeth, and Representative Stephen Kinsey. I also want to thank PWP Video for their assistance in production of this podcast. They're great partners in creating media with a mission. For more of their work, visit pwpvideo.com. Our theme song was composed by Zach Wright, and the show was produced by me, alongside of my colleague John Colburn, also of Jeff's Human Services, and Michael Schweisheimer and Pat Ganley of PWP Video. The show is skillfully edited by Pat. Follow us on social media at Jeff's Human Services on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm Kristen Rantanen. Until next time on Where Policy Meets People. <laughs>